This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Feels like we're living in a post-apocalyptic era with the grainy skies we have, the dark brown smog coming from Canada. It's the first story we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. And because Laura is to blame for this mess, because it's her native land that is damaging our delightful summer weather, we'll start with her. Laura, I was driving down the Jennings Freeway yesterday, and I looked at the Cleveland skyline. You could barely see it. It was just behind this, this rust brown fog. Why is Canada darkening our skies? Because it's a nefarious plot to take over all of North America, Chris. I, I feel like you're going to start singing that South Park Blame Canada song that was like cool 20 years ago. Anyway, um, these are really disturbing amounts of smoke that is blanketing much of the United States. If you look at the pictures of New York City, it looks like a dense fog. And I took a picture this morning on my run over Lake Erie, and it's this like orangey pink haze. It's, it's all from wildfires in Canada. And a few weeks back, it was big fires in Alberta. Now it's wildfires in Quebec and Ontario. They're contributing nitrogen oxides and particulate matter in the air that's coming all the way down here. There's 160 fires in Quebec right now. They've had fires in Nova Scotia, which is a maritime province, you know, northeast of Maine. You don't think of wildfires in that area. You think of it out west. And so this could be the worst season they've ever had. They've already burned about more than 3.3 million hectares of land. I had to look that up. That's 2.471 acres. The area roughly totals the size of Belgium, completely wiped out. So they, they think this is only going to increase in June. And with all of this little rain, they're going to, the wildfires are going to remain unusually high. So we're going to see it the rest of the week in Cleveland. It could come back all summer if they can't get these wildfires under control. The lack of rain that we've been talking about for almost three weeks now, they've been facing the same thing to the north, right? That yeah, there hasn't nobody's been getting rain. Fires. Is this a climate change related issue? I don't remember this ever happening before. And you start to wonder, is this going to become a regular part of a Cleveland summer? Big fires in Canada, the way they have them in California, and we don't see blue sky. You're right. I don't know, but you have to think that climate change has messed with the, the precipitation, the temperature, that that changes something. But I don't know why the wildflowers fires are burning so hot and heavy now. And if this will become a regular thing, I hope not. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't, it seems weird to me that they're having them in places like Quebec and Nova Scotia where they're, you know, Nova Scotia is surrounded by water. So it's a really interesting phenomenon. Well, and it's really bad for your lungs. I mean, the particulates in the air. New York City today, they're not going to let kids play outside for recess. And there's serious recommendations about what you do outside and 
whether you work out, we're breathing all this stuff, right. which cannot be good for us. And it's not but, just a particulate matter from the smoke. It's also this ground level ozone that we're getting. And I was like at the soccer field the other night and there's a ball field right next to it. And the dust was just kicking up, right? And you could see it in the air. And when we're not getting rain, that stuff's staying in the air. It's not getting dampened and tamped down. So all of the truck traffic, all of the the dust from it, all the paving projects and the construction, that's all going in our air and causing ozone problems. And then you add some allergens that are really kicking up. And we are breathing some unhealthy air right now. We really do need rain to wash it all away. The maps that are online that show this, the smoke working its way across the Midwest and the Northeast are frightening. And they have their darkest spots at times right over Cleveland. Detroit is also, I guess, has some of the worst air quality. New York City, as of whatever time they measured it, was number two in the world for having the worst air quality because of all of this smoke. And we're seeing that, too. We need some rain. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is Cleveland City Council so desperate to keep a jail in the city borders? Is that the kind of economic development the city wants these days? And what was Kevin Conwell thinking with his quote about families? Courtney. Yeah, so we learned that many on city council, and it sounds like the whole body is going to be pushing for this. They're, they are opposed to moving the jail outside of Cleveland and it seems like a big, big part of the concern here is the income tax revenues they lose. Right now, the jail's currently in Cleveland. There's got to be, what, pushing a thousand folks who would probably be working at the jail, depending on which functions would move out of the city. And I think the city council is really concerned about losing that income tax revenue. Those are somewhat decent paying jobs. And they're worried about keeping that money in Cleveland. But like you said, it's also about... Cleveland families, city councilman Kevin Conwell went to county council on Tuesday and addressed his colleagues on Monday's night, basically saying it's not just about taxes, it's about mothers and fathers that would have to go outside of the city just to see their children at the jail. You know, but but that is about as bogus an argument as you can make, because where they're talking about putting this, even though they haven't formally announced it, is in Garfield Heights, which is actually closer to most of the east side than going downtown and it would have much more available parking and there would be more RTA runs taking people out there. This is a far better location for people that want to go visit. For people that want to visit now, they got to drive into the into the middle of the city. They got to find parking, which costs some money. And a lot of these people are indigent. And, it, and it's not at all convenient. This is one of the reasons they're picking this is it's more convenient. Also, I thought that there was going to be some kind of income tax split because Garfield Heights has that no poaching agreement with Cleveland with water. So Cleveland would still get half the income taxes, right? I don't think we have details of what that would be. The county hasn't even identified Garfield Heights, right, as their preferred location. We've reported it that it's among the contenders here, but I don't think we really have concrete plans on on things like that yet. This this kind of parochial thinking is what always holds us back. It's We have all these municipalities going, nye, 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 fighting for their little piece, and hardly anybody looks at globally what's good. This looks like a great site for a jail. It's, it's largely not polluted, as we understand it, easily accessible. It's closer, I think, to three or four 
district police stations than the current jail. So the police would have much more time on the road because they're not going back and forth to downtown. But you get this kind of parochial thinking in, in Cleveland City Council, mine, 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 instead of looking at the greater good. Well, the argument about families, I, I will be curious to see where that goes. Like you said, it is probably closer to at least two police districts. Cleveland police do bring in their fresh arrest to the jail. So proximity for Cleveland police is a consideration here. But we've also, you know, the the, the city council people disagree with you. They think it would be harder for families to reach there. It is worth noting that when the county was scoring this site, Caitlin Durbin reported that transportation was one of the drawbacks to that site, access to public transportation. It is 16 minutes from downtown Cleveland. We'll we'll have to see where this debate goes, but Cleveland City Council President Blaine Griffin said he's drafting a letter to the county with the support from the majority of council opposing any move outside the city, and there's talk of some viable options within the city limits, potentially a brownfield on the east side. A brownfield. That's exactly what we need. You know what we should do? We should make a map of where people get arrested, where what the origin point is for people going to the jail. They're not coming from downtown. They're coming from the neighborhoods. And my bet is we'll find the majority of those people who are arrested are closer to this site than to the downtown site. And um, I, I bet we'll find that it's an easier thing for police. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've talked about State Senator Jerry Serino's bill to clamp down on free speech in Ohio colleges under the guise of protecting free speech. He's really right out of Orwell. It's a terrible law likely to drive students and faculty to states that cherish scholarship and open discussion. But we have not talked about the dollar cost of this thing. Lisa, reporter Jake Zuckerman has laid that out. How bad is it? Yeah, and he did a great job because, you know, these costs are squishy and kind of hard to pin down, but he did his best. So there was an analysis done by the Inter-University Council of Ohio, and they they have several member colleges, but their analysis is on the early original draft of Senate Bill 83, which has gone through some amendments before it passed the Senate last week. So the new cost to comply with Senate Bill 83 would increase significantly from significantly from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in administrative costs, loss of federal grants, and so on and so forth. So uh, one of the biggest impacts would be the bill's ban on donations or contributions from China or anyone acting in its behalf, and that includes students and their families. So Ohio State says that that could cost them $137 million a year. That would be most of it is from student and family payments, $3.4 million in foreign gift reporting and 3.9 million in procuring supplies from China. At Miami University, it would hinder their ability to solicit donations from thousands of Chinese students and families. And the University of Cincinnati says it would cost them about 8 million. And University of Toledo said that they would probably have to end their 36-year partnership with Yanshan University, which has one professor and two graduate assistants on their campus. Now, the compliance with the policy that prohibits diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and implementation of disciplinary policies for violations would cost anywhere from $15,000 to $250,000, depending on the institution, and this would be an annual cost. Ohio University 
university said they would need two new staff. That would cost them $188,000 a year. Other universities, Shawnee State and Wright State, it'll cost them $250,000 a year. When we talk about grant money, federal grants, and a lot of them do require diversity, equity, and inclusion elements. So that's not allowed under Senate Bill 83. OSU could lose $13 million a year from at least five ongoing multi-year grants, and they say it creates a competitive disadvantage for research grants. Now, they have to post their syllabi online, and there's other mandatory reporting required by this bill. They say that just posting the syllabi online would be $160,000 a year in labor and software. And if you're creating violation reports for DEI violations, that would cost about $120,000 on average to produce those reports. And the, the fringe conservatives for years have tried to make higher education part of the culture worse. You know, they talk about how conservatives are under fire on the college campuses, and there's been lots of back and forth. But what Serino is doing is a nuclear bomb on academic life in Ohio. I, I can't imagine students from other states will want to come here. I can't imagine in-state students will not want to get out and academics that that are looking for careers in colleges won't look here. I mean, why would you want to come to a state that is just rigidly locking you down on what you can say? And it's not just the letter of the law. People will be so worried about Mm -hmm. being hit with violations Mm -hmm. of this that they won't say anything. It's Mm -hmm. if you talk to academics across the state, they are shocked that this is what the future is. And it's going to turn Ohio into a state of morons because all the smart people are going to leave. And, you know, and of course, what they're calling this, they call this intellectual diversity rights. That's what they're saying that Senate (laughs) Bill 83 is about. But here, you know, now that we've seen these costs, which I don't think the bill has considered these costs, and there's no money in this bill to fund all these new reporting and, and so on. Well, they have, this reminds me of issue one, right? With all of the double speak. Like if we just call it something, even though it's the opposite of that, people will believe the name. And and the same idea that where they're doing the August election, they didn't put any money in it. They're just costing all these institutions money. And Chris, I think you're right. I mean, my kids are going to be going to college in six and eight years. And this is terrifying because why would you come to a state where you feel like you're going to be tamped down on what you're allowed to say and what you're allowed to think and what you're allowed to study? I mean, we want people to move to Ohio. We want smart college educated people to move to Ohio. They got so excited about the Intel plant. And now we're going to keep, you know, a whole generation of people from even considering Ohio. College expands minds. When people go to college, they are considering all sorts of ideas and thoughts they haven't thought of before. And what Jerry Serena doesn't trust is that they'll make good judgments. He he has come out of nowhere and is just one of the worst legislators we've seen. This is a nightmare for the future of Ohio. And he won't be around to, to take flack for it then. Doesn't it this feel will like take 10 years to see the results from. It feels like a way of gerrymandering. Like, we'll just make sure that the only conservatives ever have their voices heard in Ohio. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible bill, and now we know what the cost is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's the vision for downtown is laid out Tuesday by the Downtown Cleveland Alliance and others. And what is a 15-minute city? Laura. Well, excuse me if I'm not like super specific in my answer because this doesn't seem super specific in its plan. But this is reimagining downtown Cleveland. It is aimed at that creating a 15-minute city in downtown. While that means is a concentration of places for people to live, work, and play all within a 15-minute walk. And I really do like the term that they use that this is a revamp of sidewalk to skyline. So they really... They value the downtown core. They say it's the fastest growing neighborhood in the city. It's probably one of the only ones that is growing. 32% population growth since 2010, $9 billion in investment. And they want it to be, you know, a place, obviously, office workers aren't necessarily coming there anymore every day anymore. So to have a population, you want to have people live there. So they want to attract retailers, particularly female and minority owned businesses and determine future retail capacity. They want to attract more. They want to create more spaces where people can gather. They want places where kids can play. They want to install more lighting, which would start on Public Square and extend to Euclid Avenue and Mall B in their first year. That would hopefully make people feel more safe. I I think it was Destination Cleveland that recently unveiled their plan to have all sorts of cool mood lighting around Public Square and a bunch of public art that would just kind of create these spaces. And the same same plan here, funding a public art pro- program for murals and creative art. Also, more trees and seating. So just make it a, a more inviting place to be. Do, do you get the feeling they finally awakened to the crisis that COVID has created for downtown, that all the workers or many of the workers are not there or not there nearly as often, and that this is a serious threat. It seems like other cities reacted more quickly. Yeah, I don't think this is, I think COVID brought this to the forefront, that you don't have people driving in in droves from the suburbs and parking in parking garages and like going to the restaurants every day. But remember, they've been talking about retail downtown since probably, you know, early aughts. Remember Geiger's was downtown. That was a big score. When we got Heinen's downtown, that was huge. They still want to figure out what's going on with Tower City because you need to have people downtown in order to support retail. And we talked about parking yesterday, right? People don't want to pay to park to go shopping. So I think that this is interesting. I don't know that just saying, hey, we want to have retail downtown is going to change the trend. Certainly, I would love to see it. I got to tell you, the overwhelming response to my subtext about parking yesterday disagreed with you. Um, they said if you start charging nights and weekends, they're they're not going to come downtown. So uh, I think they're just tired of getting done. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Hey, Courtney, what is Cleveland City Council's back to basics plan for $30 million in federal stimulus cash. Yes. So we saw this get approval from city council this week, this back to basics idea that bid pitched as part of his last batch of spending. You know, this money has taken a circuitous route. It would be used for things like street repaving, park upgrades, traffic calming measures. And and initially when Bib came out with this idea, it was $30 million. And then there was a compromise with council where council got some things it wanted with some of the remaining ARPA money. And as part of that deal, it was slashed to $20 million. And then there was talk about slashing it further, but now we're back up to 30. And that comes after council in, in, in this first hearing, uh, 
really kind of complained that there wasn't enough money in there for street paving. So we've landed on this $30 million. The vast majority of it's going to go to street paving, about $17 million, and that'll take care of roads all over the city that are said to be in in bad condition. About $3.5 million of this allocation is going to go towards traffic calming. So things like traffic circles and speed tables to slow folks down and make the streets safer. And then nearly $10 million is set for park improvements. Think new playground equi- new playground equipment, basketball courts getting reserviced. So a lot of kind of the basic everyday city capital infrastructure spending is going to get a boost and a shot in the arm. And and, and some of the traffic calming focus here is interesting and different than what the city usually endeavors to do with its capital money. You know, we talked yesterday about your story about the finance director of Cleveland being all nervous about this move to create participatory budgeting, which would involve about $14 million, saying, oh my, that's a huge bite of the budget. But if they did participatory budgeting, if if it worked like it happened in other cities, it would be spent on the very kinds of things you're talking about here in which they're spending $30 million. Why couldn't council have taken a part of this money, brought in members of the public and said, hey, help us determine where this goes? They've got the block of it. It's going to go for roads and all the stuff you mentioned. But they're so adamant about blocking regular people from being part of the process. Just think there's a little bit of hypocrisy. They don't want to do it with 14 million, but they're about to spend 30 million on the very same kinds of things. Yeah, and and that the participatory budgeting thing boils down to a philosophical difference. Council thinks they ought to be the ones making these decisions. They see themselves as the voice of the the voters who sent them there, which to a large degree there is. But then you get into all these arguments about, you know, who, who makes the final decision and where exactly the money goes. In this back to the basics uh, hearing about a week ago, council was was very down into the nitty gritty of why does this ward get this many streets paved and this ward get this many? And it's all part of, I think, people looking out for what they see as their own neighborhoods. Yeah, but voter turnout in Cleveland is terrible. So when they say they're representing what residents want, it's very few residents that are voting for them, not even the majority. Uh, And so this might be a way to get more people involved and hear from more people overall. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, we have another one of these financial impact studies that sound way too good to be true. How much is Cleveland State University saying it contributes to the local economy? Yeah, this was kind of an eye-opening figure. Um, This is a study by Lightcast, which is a labor market analytics company. It says that Cleveland State provided $3 billion to the Northeast Ohio economy in fiscal year 2021-22, supporting 36,843 jobs across Northeast Ohio. They say that uh, CSU grads uh, added $2.6 billion in added income to the region. And this is interesting. They say that 91 percent of graduates remain in Ohio for one year after graduation. 78 have remained after 10 years. So that's that's encouraging. And also they say that Cleveland State events attracted out-of-area visitors who spent a million bucks in the city and in the area. And uh, they say that 23 percent of the student body is from out of state. And spinoff companies that were spun off by the university generated $22.6 million. So yeah, this is a bunch of money. CSU President President Laura Bloomberg says CSU is an economic engine. 
Okay. But we've gotten these financial impact statements from all sorts of institutions. The Rock Hall claims gazillions of dollars. The Guardians, the Browns, the Cabs claim, claim all sorts of money. The hospitals. If all of these were accurate and all this money was being pumped into the Cleveland economy, we'd all be millionaires. I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing the $3 billion Cleveland State says it's pumping into the economy. Where is it? Well, Cleveland State's not saying it. It's this labor market group. But still, I think, but I'm encouraged by the fact that the graduate retention rate is high, that they're staying in Ohio after they're graduating. So if those figures are accurate, that's very encouraging. That's a big deal. And and we remember talking about that five, six years ago, that, that Cleveland had done a poor job of keeping graduates in town. So that is, as you said, encouraging. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's do an offbeat one. It might seem an odd one for this discussion until one lands on you while you weed. Laura, what should you do if you see a wasp going in and out of your raised bed container? Well, it depends what kind, what time of years, uh, what time of year it is. If you're seeing it now, this time of year, you can get rid of a wasp colony before it gets settled. And that's because the queen of the wasp, the yellow jacket, is out looking for a new place to settle for the season. So they like to settle in the ground, wasps do, like in a comb. And so they need a cavity in order to to form this. And raised beds make sense because they can kind of push the soil aside. So if you find a cavity in your raised bed or an old comb, best to get rid of it now and tamp down that that dirt so that they can't get in there. If you're going to see it later in the summer and you're getting a lot of yellow jackets around it, you need to treat it. And that means getting the the spray that'll kill it and following all the directions, wearing long pants and long sleeve shirt. Usually you do it at night and following all those and getting it completely killed. Or you can always hire an exterminator to do it. But you really don't want to mess with having wasp nests in your raised beds. That just sounds like a recipe for a really miserable summer. I had this experience this spring. We had a sewer pipe work done in which they dug out a, a chunk of our front yard. And when they put the dirt back, they created a cavity. And before I could go in there with a shovel to fill the cavity, it turned into a wasp highway. I mean, they were going in and out of there. So I called an exterminator and I was surprised that they didn't gown up to, to take care of it. They just walked up and sprayed powder into the hole and said in 24 hours, you could do something. And when I asked why they said what you said, what's well, early yet? They haven't set the pattern. Uh, it's not as dangerous as it would be a month from now. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very interesting. But yeah, I didn't and, do it myself. There's no way I was going <laughs> to mess with that. And wasps are different than bees. So bees are pollinators. And we talk a lot about pollinator beds. And, you know, we talked about no mo may doing all, the, you know, helping out the bees. And wasps are predators. That They're very different in, in their role. And so wasps can eat some of the beetles and stuff you don't want in your garden, but it's it's different. And so, yeah, I, as far as killing bees, that's a different proposition. And they are not generally in the ground. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, did Cleveland go ahead and put aside $50 million for new housing? And you're going to explain how this is separate from the Habitat for Humanity story we discussed a week ago. Yes, there's all sorts of American Rescue Plan Act funding that Cleveland has set aside for new housing in the city. That sums, you know, 
I think well above a hundred million dollars. I'd have to get back to you with specific numbers. But so we've got all these different kind of pieces of this housing for all plan that the council and the mayor is doing with this federal aid. And this week we saw council sign off on kind of one of the important steps needed to start moving some of that money out the door. And this involves $50 million for new housing throughout the city. And basically, this funding would go to different developers, CDCs, groups that have specific projects in mind throughout the city, and using this ARPA money to get those projects over the finish line. So this money you can check out the full list. We've got the full list of where these projects would be. The final tally of where public money is going to go for each of these projects is not quite finalized yet, but Mayor Justin Bibb's administration has a good idea of which projects they think ought to be prioritized here. And And as council was moving to, to finalize this mon- money earlier this week, we saw this debate come out, you know, should we prioritize these public dollars for housing projects that require less of a public subsidy to get off the ground? Or should we prioritize money for housing projects that are really struggling to get the private dollars together and would therefore require more of a public subsidy? Now, that last group, you can imagine that happens in neighborhoods that aren't doing as well economically. And you imagine that the projects that require less of a public subsidy are in the hotter neighborhoods, you know, think the near West side and places like that. So there's this philosophical debate unfolding. We'll still have to see what the final list of projects where this funding goes, but there's a little bit of a philosophical debate here. How, how should we support housing in a city where markets are very different from one neighborhood to the next? Overall, you really do have to respect how Cleveland has gone about spending this huge volume of cash. It seems like they've put a great deal of thought into what would serve the needs of the residents best. And whenever we talk about it, it feels like, okay, that's a good decision. They're doing something good here, which is not what we always said about their counterparts in Cuyahoga County. Yeah. And and part of the interesting thing about this philosophy, at least this piece of the housing money, is if you're giving it to developers it, it's out the door and developers have that to work with. There's there's going to be some piece of this housing money that's administered in-house by City Hall, which sometimes has trouble, right, getting money out the door. But this chunk of money, at least, will go into private and nonprofit hands for them to move things along. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's squeeze in a short one. Lisa, which Northeast Ohio companies made the Fortune 500 list released Tuesday? Yeah, this was based on total revenue. So in Northeast Ohio, the top one is Mayfield-based Progressive Insurance at number 88 with $49.8 billion. Cleveland Cliffs came in at 170 with $23 billion. They are the largest U.S. flat steel maker. Sherwin-Williams, 178 with $22.1 billion. And then we have Akron Goodyear at 191. First Energy of Akron at 343 with $12.1 billion. All the way down to J.M. Smucker of Orville. They were at number 465 with $8 billion. There were 24 Ohio companies on the list, and this is Ohio, not just Northeast Ohio. The highest ranked Ohio company was Cardinal Health at number 14. Okay, that's a lot of money floating through Northeast Ohio. It's always fun to talk about those lists. 
That's it for the Wednesday episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thank you, Lisa, Lauren, Courtney, and thanks to everybody who listens. <laughs>